It's Friday, February 23rd, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. The Japanese call it Shinrin-yoku, forest bathing. This is the idea that humans have a physiological need to be outdoors, and therefore that spending time in nature makes you physically and mentally healthier. Unfortunately, for most of us, that's just not how we live these days. We've moved indoors as a people, as a species, and uh, I think we're we're paying a price. Richard Louvre has been warning for years about the public health impacts of our increasingly isolated, sedentary, and digitally mediated lifestyles. His book, Last Child in the Woods, came out back in 2005, and at the time, the connection between health and access to nature was not so obvious to many readers. Thirteen years later, though, the science is in, and the evidence increasingly suggests the two are indeed strongly linked, and that has many people rethinking how they relate to nature within urban spaces. Either the human species is going to increasingly lose whatever connection it has to the natural world, or it means a new kind of city. We'll talk with author and advocate Richard Louvre coming up. First, a quick look at some dates on the PEC events calendar at PECPA.org. This weekend, Friday and Saturday, the Pennsylvania Council of Trout Unlimited hosts the 13th Keystone Coldwater Conference. It's happening at the Ramada Inn Conference Center in State College. Also this weekend, the Tree to Table Maple Sugaring Festival planned for Taconi Creek Park. You can show up and learn how maple syrup is made and, yes, even taste a little syrup on a waffle. You're encouraged to dress warmly for this family-friendly event that happens on Saturday afternoon, 2 to 3.30 p.m., February 24th. In the event of snow, it's moved to Sunday, the 25th. You are asked to RSVP. Find out how to do that by visiting the PEC website and uh, looking through the events calendar for the Tree to Table Maple Sugaring Festival. We'll link you to everything you need to know to get connected with that event. By the way, if you're into the maple syrup thing, uh, DCNR has a whole slew of maple sugaring events planned across the state throughout the month of March. Many dates, too many to list here, but you can find all of them on the DCNR events calendar. We'll, of course, link that, as always, from PECPA.org. And conservation professionals, others working to promote, install, and manage riparian buffers are invited to join DCNR and the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy at the 2018 Riparian Forest Buffer Summit in State College. Once again, opportunities to network with other professionals, develop new partnerships, build communication skills, and much more. The Ramada Conference Center in State College, February 28th through March 1st. By the way, some folks from PEC will be there, so be sure to come say hi. And one more date for you, February 28th, Wednesday evening, you're invited to Nature Talks. If you're not familiar, this is the annual lecture series hosted by the Tukeny Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership. Spring season is kicking off this week, and this week's featured speaker is our guest today on Pennsylvania Legacies, Richard Louvre, author of the bestseller Last Child in the Woods, which helped start the conversation about the developmental importance for children of exposure to nature. Well, his new book, Vitamin N, expands on that observation, offering prescriptions for what he calls a nature-rich life. I spoke with Richard Louvre recently about how the idea has evolved and gained influence over the years. When I wrote Last Child in the Woods, which was published in 2005, I, I cited 
60 studies that either showed the growing deficit of experience outdoors or the benefits, which were even more important. Uh, and, and that was new research then. This has been virtually ignored by child development people and, and the people who study these things. But since then, since those 60 studies, uh, the Children in Nature Network, which is the nonprofit that I founded, uh, co-founded, we have a library online and there are now well over 600 studies just in a little more than a decade, mainly on the benefits, not only to children, but to adults. And that's important to point out because, you know, parents and teachers, anyone who, who takes kids outdoors gets all the benefits also. But just briefly, some of the benefits are uh, reduced uh, symptoms of attention deficit disorder, uh, better ability to concentrate, it, often more creativity, more inclusiveness uh, on, for instance, natural playgrounds, as opposed to the concrete, you know, asphalt, more common playgrounds. On those kind of playgrounds and natural playgrounds, kids tend to invite other kids to play who don't look like them or different races, different gender. Uh, there's apparently less bullying on natural playgrounds. So it, it goes on and on. I mean, it includes psychological benefits, physical benefits, reduction in child obesity and, and adult obesity, all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and what what about for adults then? The rest of us, how does how does being cut off from from nature and green places affect us? Uh, and you mentioned physical health. I'm interested in that as well, physically and mentally. Uh, well, physically, uh, just uh, as an example of one of the studies on adults. Two groups of people, and several studies did this, but two groups of people, one exercising over time on indoor, uh, in an indoor gym on uh, treadmills. The other group was expending the exact same number of calories, but doing it outside in uh, hiking or gardening, some other kind of uh, green exercise. They compared those two groups, spent the same amount of time exercising, burned exactly the same number of calories. The people who did it indoors on treadmills got healthier, blood pressure, better psychological outlook, all of those things. But the people who burned exactly the same number of calories in exercise outdoors in nature, specifically in nature, they did much better than the people in the gyms. And we don't really know why that's true, but that's the pattern that shows up again and again for cognitive health, psychological health, and physical health. So what's your assessment of the state of uh, adults, children, people in, in American industrialized countries and our connection to nature? Are we getting enough of it? Well, the, the deficit specifically for children has grown exponentially. Kids spend very little time outdoors compared to what they did just one or two generations ago. And much of the time that children spend, and this is true of adults as well, is spent looking at screens, not streams, but screens. And uh, we've moved indoors as a people, as a species. And uh, I think we're, we're paying a price in that. Part of the price we pay is physical health, psychological health. But I think part of the price that we're beginning to realize that we pay is loneliness. When we look at some of the recent studies of Facebook and some of the social media and the amount of time that people, particularly kids, spend on social media, the more time they spend on that, the lonelier they are. Ironically, the more friends you have on Facebook, it may be that the more the fewer friends you have in real life. 
And these are recent studies that are quite disturbing, including disturbing to some of the founders of, of Facebook who are speaking out now. And so we're moving into a period in which when we are disconnected uh, from reality, we're disconnected from other people, but we're also disconnected from the natural world. One of the studies that I find the most interesting looked at urban parks, and they found that the urban parks in which people showed the, the, the best psychological health improvement were the urban parks with the highest degree, with the highest amount of biodiversity. In other words, there were a lot of animals and plants. There were a lot of other species around the people. I don't think that's any accident. I think that much of our path, many of our pathologies as a species have to do with this idea that we can go it alone, that we don't need other species. I'm work, working on a new book right now about the relationship between humans and other animals. And that's one of the things that sh is showing up again and again. And we can reduce our loneliness uh, by knowing the animals around us, by uh, recognizing them, by acknowledging that they exist. And loneliness now is it's increasing it's in its importance to public health officials. I think it's WHO, the World Health Organization, recently said that, that human loneliness may soon top in terms of a cause of, of, uh, of serious illness among adults and children. How does this translate in, in practical terms? What's the prescription? How do we as a society address this? Is it as simple as more parks and trails and green space? What's the answer? Well, you know, in in Philadelphia, actually some of the older northeastern cities are better off than some of the western sunbelt cities like San Diego, where I'm at. San Diego actually is pretty good, but many of them are wall-to-wall, -wall, you know, horizon-to-horizon -horizon concrete. Philadelphia had the luck of being one of the cities that Frederick Law Olmsted created, uh, you know, wonderful parks uh, in Philadelphia. So you have more nature, more open space than probably many people in Philadelphia realize. Now, some some neighborhoods, there's there's nothing there. You have to recognize that. But even in cities, we can find nature if we define it loosely and if we go looking for it. For kids in particular, this means that parents have to get their kids outdoors. They have to uh, show by example some kind of enthusiasm for being outdoors in nature. Schools have to change. Uh, there is a movement for more and more nature preschools. In the last five to eight years, I believe, the number of nature preschools has increased in the United States from about uh, eight to uh, well over 250. That's according to Education Week. These are schools in which kids learn outdoors a lot, not just about nature, not just science, but about everything. And the studies show the impact of the natural environment on ability, on cognitive ability and creativity really suggests that if we really want to find the, you know, create the real cutting edge of education, we'll have fewer screens and more time outdoors uh, learning about, again, everything. You alluded a moment ago to the fact that, you know, not all neighborhoods are created equal when it comes to access to these kinds of resources. And, there, you know, there is a, a class or a socioeconomic dimension to this. Certainly, we can see how education could play a big role in changing that. But how do you address the, the diversity and the inclusion problem, the fact that it's simply easier for some than others to avail themselves of these kinds of resources? Yeah, and I understand 
what you're saying I, for an earlier book that I was publishing 2000 called Childhood's Future. I spent some time in North Philly and uh, I understand how difficult it can be. But uh, there's several ways to deal with that. One is schools, you know, funding schools to get buses to take kids on field trips. But it also has to do with changing schoolyards. There's a movement afoot and Children Nature Network is involved with that to green as many schoolyards as possible, to have uh, school gardens, have native species on schoolyards, but also community gardens and community uh, areas of native species, even in the densest of cities. And in fact, particularly in Detroit, for instance, is becoming famous for its its community gardens in the very dense, uh, densely populated urban neighborhoods. So we not only have to get kids and ourselves outside of these highly congested neighborhoods, we have to change those neighborhoods. I actually believe that cities can become engines of biodiversity. There are a lot of things going on in design. It's called biophilic design, biophilic architecture that can change where we work, where we go to school and where we live to incorporate more nature. Uh, Workplaces, for instance, that are designed with biophilic architecture, which means getting as much nature into that a building and around that building as you can, as much greenery, as much life. In those workplaces, uh, adults are far more productive. Sick time goes down, turnover gets better. The same can be true of schools. Just having natural daylight in a school can raise test scores. And what we're finding, what the recent studies have found is that the schools that are greened, I don't mean solar panels, I mean literally School gardens, getting kids outdoors, whether it's in the neighborhood or whether it's uh, uh, on a field trip, those schools do better on standardized testing, both in Massachusetts and in Chicago. Major studies have been done, longitudinal studies that have shown that. So partly it's recognizing the nature that's around us, even in dense urban neighborhoods, Um, but also creating more nature. One of the precepts of what I've called the nature principle, which is the title of my second book, which is more about adults on this topic, is uh, conservation is no longer enough. Now we need to create nature, as strange as that sounds. As of 2008, more people in the world live in cities than in the countryside. First time in human history. That means one of two things. Either the human species is going to increasingly lose whatever connection it has to the natural world, or it means a new kind of city. And I think there are a lot of college students, there are a lot of people out there that are very interested in creating that future rather than accepting the kind of post-apocalyptic future that, that we seem to think about more than we should. Well, that really is the bigger context. We've been talking about this. I think it's really interesting to talk about this in terms of the effect on human beings, the sort of selfish uh, way of of looking at it. But really, there's another way in which being cut off from nature impairs our ability to understand the problem that we're facing and deal with it effectively. I think about, uh, I'm actually based in Pittsburgh, where Rachel Carson grew up, and she writes about playing in the woods near her home, just outside of, in, in the town of Springdale, Pennsylvania. And, and how that shaped her personality and her career path and her, her whole life's work. Do you worry that children growing up now that could be the future Rachel Carson's or whoever, you know, are not getting those formative experiences? Yeah, I, I do worry about that. The, the studies of 
of the adults who identify themselves as conservationists or environmentalists show that almost to a person they had some kind of transcendent experience directly with nature when they were kids. What happens if that virtually ends? You know, there will always be environmentalists, but increasingly they will carry nature in their briefcases, not in their hearts. And that's a very different relationship. And I don't think it's sustainable. On the other hand, kids can tell you anything about the Amazon rainforest. Now they're getting better education about many environmental issues than I got when I was a kid. Uh, but they can't tell you about the last time they went out and watched the clouds move or lie down in the grass and watch the leaves move or meet a lizard, you know. They can't tell you those stories often. In fact, often they're very afraid of nature. And that gets to the core of something else, which is one of the reasons for so much indoor time now is that parents are terribly afraid of strangers, strange humans. And that transfers into fear of, strain, uh, of nature itself. David Sobel at Antioch calls, talks about something he calls ecophobia, which is that if we expose, if we start talking to kids too early at a developmentally too early stage, when they're really small, about the end of the world, about you know climate change and all of these issues that are quite real and threatening, if we start talking to them too early, particularly when they have no chance to experience nature just for the fun and wonder of it, when we do that, we set them up. David calls this ecophobia. We set them up to associate nature for the rest of their lives with Armageddon, with, the, with destruction, with death, rather than with joy and wonder. And that is not a prescription for a healthy future environmental movement. You started by talking about how the academic landscape around this issue has changed in the time since you published your first book. What other changes have you seen in that time? Is evidence that attitudes are changing in a way that could lead to some, some more productive, concrete changes? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, it, one of the problems is that we don't have any real longitudinal studies. We don't have the 30-year studies of how long, how much time kids spend outdoors or adults because nobody thought to ask the question because we took it for granted. So we really don't have a baseline to work from to say that we're even better than we were 10 years ago overall. What we do have is a few studies that take a stab at that, and we have anecdotal evidence. Uh, one study was done last year called The Nature of Americans, and it recreated some, uh, some a study that was done at Yale University by Stephen Keller uh, uh, 15 or 20 years ago. And what they found was that awareness in the last decade, awareness of, uh, the pro of, of, of that nature is great for the health and cognition of small children, of children in general, and, and people in general, they found that awareness of the health benefits of nature had increased greatly. Most people know now that it's good for you. Uh, nature deficit disorder, which is the phrase that I used in all three of these books, has entered actually several languages now. So it's not only because of that, but because of a lot of other uh, reasons, more studies, all that, that there's far more awareness there now than there was when I wrote Last Child in the Woods. But what they also found in this study is that the barriers are still just as high to getting outdoors. 
and that taking action is a whole nother issue. And that progress has not is not commensurate with the amount of awareness now that has increased about getting outdoors. So it's one of the reasons why I think we, I don't think we're going to get much top down these days in terms of government under Obama and uh, George Bush, actually. There was a lot of activity. The Department of Interior, Sally Jewell, the most recent Secretary of Interior, was a real champion of this. Uh, Dirk Kempthorne under Bush was the uh, Interior Secretary. He was a real champion of this. President Obama was a, a champion of it. Uh, of getting kids outdoors. And President Obama, for instance, uh, created the Every Kid in the Park initiative, which uh, as of, I think, two years ago when it started, every fourth grader in America gets a free pass, and so does their family for a whole year to any national park or other federal lands or waters. Uh, so there is a lot of activity for a while at the top, but that's unlikely to continue. And, uh, you know, maybe it will, but it probably won't. But there's more activity now at the state level in government. But that's all top down. Uh, but we also need, uh, in the middle, we need school districts to pay attention to this. Pediatricians are paying a lot more attention to it. I gave the keynote in 2010 uh, to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, I talked to about 5,000 pediatricians. And some of them went home and changed their practices. And a guy named Robert Czar in Washington, D.C., a pediatrician there, organized the doctors there to start prescribing nature, literally prescribing it. And they did a database of all the urban parks and so that the doctors now can not only prescribe nature, but they can turn to the computer behind their desk and say, there's a park three blocks from your house. Here's what you can do there. So that kind of thing is going on. If that spreads, that's very important. If we see changes in the school districts, that's very important. But then there's the grassroots. The grassroots, there's actually probably more going on than there is on those other two levels. Uh, for example, uh, one thing that I promoted for a long time is called nature, family nature clubs. And uh, what these are are multiple families that agree informally. You can download a, a free toolkit from the Children Nature Network, which is childrenandnature.org to start your own. You don't have to wait for an organization to give you a blessing. <clears throat> These are multiple families that decide to create a core of, you know, three, five, ten, or many more families that they can tap into and say, I'm going to go, I'm going to take my kids to the park on Saturday. Who wants to join us? And so multiple families show up at the park and that helps parents with their fear. That helps it actually happen. You know, you're much more likely to show up if somebody's waiting for you. In San Diego, where I live, the Family Nature Club that started here, I didn't start it, obviously, but somebody else did, now has over 1,800 families, families, not individuals. And uh, this is happening in cities all over the country. I don't know about Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, uh, but it probably is there. But it's something that's easy, and anybody can start one of these any kind of economic group, any kind of neighborhood. Uh, and th that's one example of the kinds of, uh, of the kind of self self-replicating social change we need. It's not just passing legislation, it's changing culture. Well, Richard Lube, there's a lot of excitement around your talk coming up. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. 
Good. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to being at Lafayette College on the 28th. All right. We'll see you there. Richard Louvre is author of Last Child in the Woods, The Nature Principle, and most recently, Vitamin N, The Essential Guide to a Nature-Rich Life, which is also the subject of the talk he'll be giving later this week in the Philadelphia area. Louvre is co-founder of the Children and Nature Network, which offers resources to help individuals and small groups organize informal outings locally. And by the way, there are several such groups active in Pennsylvania. You can connect with them via the Children and Nature Network website. The address is Children and Nature, spelled out, childrenandnature.org. And we'll link, of course, from our website in the show notes for this episode. Again, Richard Louv speaks Wednesday evening at TTF Nature Talks, 6 to 8 p.m. The talk is followed by a Meet the Author reception. Please note there's a $50 registration cost. Proceeds will benefit TTF's outreach and education programs. New episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies post every other Friday. Thanks for joining us for this one. Until the next one comes around, you can check out the website at peckpa.org to learn all about our program and policy work across Pennsylvania. Listen to past podcast episodes. Check out some of our videos and more. Look for us on Twitter at PECPA and on Facebook, too. Again, the website, PECPA.org. Until next time, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.